one of the many things Michelle Obama said that is often recited is when she said, when they go low, we go high. I was feeling her. I mean, forever first lady was right. And by the way, shout out to her because her podcast debuted last week. She stunned on us by having her husband, Barack Obama, as her first guest. Just a great listen. Damn, I miss having a normal, decent, intelligent, competent people all up in the White House. Anyway, as I was saying, Michelle Obama told us to take the high road. And while theoretically she's right, in practice, that shit is hard. Every now and again, just so our spirit is right, we need to go low. That's why the word of the week is petty. I love me some good petty, which is why I am going to spend the next several minutes in complete stand mode for a group of WNBA players. Players on the Phoenix Mercury, Atlanta Dream, and the Seattle Storm wore t-shirts that said, vote Warnock, as in vote for Reverend Raphael Warnock, who was running for Senate in Georgia against Kelly Loeffler, who also is co-owner of the Atlanta Dream. Woo, that is some petty shit to endorse the opponent of the woman who is your boss. I respect that. Look, it's not like it's unwarranted. Uh, Loeffler is anti-Black Lives Matter, and she's made that abundantly clear, and even went so far as to say she was against the movement because it made Americans feel left out. She told ESPN, quote, they may feel excluded from this sport and other sports that make them feel like American values aren't at the core of what we're doing here. So Americans shouldn't want fairness, equality, and, oh, I don't know, not for the police to choke out black people or kneel on their necks until they can't breathe again without facing any accountability whatsoever. Although if we keep it real, Loeffler is right in this regard. Nothing is more American than black people having to beg white people for their own dignity and humanity. By the way, this is also the same heifer who coincidentally sold millions worth of stock after attending a hush-hush meeting about the coronavirus in January. She conveniently was able to dump a certain stock right before the market dramatically fell in March. But what Kelly Loeffler doesn't understand is that she messing with the wrong ones. See, the WNBA players are, by nature, fresh out of fucks. The majority, if not all of these women, have been fighting for equality and respect their whole careers. They deal with sexism and racism all the time. So it ain't nothing for them to let somebody like Kelly Loeffler know what time it is. Don't forget, the WNBA players were out here in these social justice streets before Colin Kaepernick. After Philando Castile was murdered, they spoke out against the Minneapolis police, the same police department that killed George Floyd. The police were so in their feelings that they walked off their post at their games. This was, again, a few months before Colin Kaepernick took a knee. Kelly Loeffler is worth half a billion dollars, and the odds of her being forced to sell her ownership is unlikely. These ladies deserve a lot of credit for coming up with a more creative solution to their problem. They may not be able to get her fired from her job as a WNBA owner, but they can damn sure make sure she gets fired from her job as United States Senator. Hey, Georgia, make sure y'all vote and get this woman about to pay. Speaking of getting folks up out the paint, my guest today, the feds tried to get him up out the paint for real. He was at the center of one of the most highly publicized college basketball scandals in history, which became the subject of an HBO documentary called The Scheme. Christian Dawkins had the nerve to expose the worst kept secret in the world, that top flight college basketball players get paid under the table to attend some of the best college basketball programs in the nation. College coaches understand that this is the underground economy and the price of doing business. But instead of going after the big name coaches who engage in this, the feds went after Dawkins and a lot of other lower tier black coaches. Christian Dawkins is up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered to tell me his compelling story. I don't know how many of you guys have been able to see this game. I watched it. It's a pandemic. Y'all ain't got shit else to do. So um, it was nothing that I didn't know existed. 
uh, frankly, Christian, and you've been in basketball long enough that this is just the price of doing business. But it amazes me that so many people think that it's shocking that there's an underground economy in college basketball. What has, since the scheme came out on HBO, um, what's been the reception that you've received from people? I agree with you. I mean, I looked at it when I watched it. I mean, obviously I'm biased. It was good to me, but there was nothing in there that was shocking. And just the whole situation to me is shocking that that this would even be an issue to me. Like I couldn't even believe the whole time that that you have people trying to stop the players from getting paid and doing cases and stuff around it. Like that's crazy to me. Um, so the reception for most people has been, been um, super positive. Most people were a little bit um, shocked about the, some of the revelations that was in there because people who aren't as versed as, as us on the topic, you know, most of that is news to them. Um, so for the most part, I think, you know, you had normal people who had no idea that this stuff happens or goes on. And I think they were shocked. And I think you also had the people who are like holy rollers who think that, um, nobody should get paid and everything like that. And then you have people who, who were like, yeah, this is something that should be happening anyway. So, um, the, the, the feedback wasn't negative at all. I don't, at least I didn't feel a negative feedback. I don't know if people were saying stuff and then come to me with it, but people were definitely surprised. I mean, even stuff like the NCAA being a nonprofit, most people didn't even know that that was the case. So some of the stuff was, was newsworthy for a lot of people um, who aren't, you know, knee deep in the business every day. Yeah. And, and to recap for people, so you wind up doing 18 or you were sentenced to 18 months between your multitude of charges. Did you do all 18? No, I haven't done any time yet. I'm still appealing the cases. Oh, so you're appealing both of them. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cause it's two separate cases. All right. Correct. So you haven't gone, which I'm sure, I'm sure you're excited about the fact that you have not had to go to prison. Uh, okay. So you're appealing these cases, but technically you're supposed to serve 18 months as things stand right now. I couldn't help but notice, even though there are some cases uh, you were more overt about. But when I watch this, it's hard not to notice who went to jail and who didn't. Or, you know, it's just hard not to recognize that there are some people that weren't charged in this scandal and some that were. Like, I, don't, I hate to be nonchalant about this whole situation, but it's like if you really boil down to what happened, you got a bunch of people taking care of some black people and this is a federal case. Like it isn't, and it's not like these kids are, are not entitled to this. Like any other profession in America, you get paid to do what you do. Um, the scandal that Christian was the center of was billed as one of the worst college basketball scandals ever. And the beauty of this game is that when you kind of peel back the layers and get down to it, I mean, frankly, I've seen a lot worse. Uh, you know, it, it really wasn't as bad as people said. The root of it was players getting paid and that there are people who have opinions about whether or not that should be the case, whether or not they should be paid or not. I'm of the opinion, take as much money as you can. But it's hard not to notice, uh, as I said, uh, you have 10 people total. It's hard not to notice who went to jail and who didn't. Which brings me to this question. Did anybody white actually get charged? They, they did charge Jim Gatto because they needed they, they needed the shoe company thing to build to have the case at all. So, yeah, they, they charged Jim. That was the only one. All right. So you have a bunch of black men who now have to face having a felony on their record. Mm -hmm. Even though you're appealing, you're still considered a convicted felon. Correct. That's a great question. I'm not. I'm not totally sure. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Okay, so bottom line, the optics is that all the black dudes go to jail. All the white coaches still get to keep their job. What do you read into that situation that it just seemed to be a particular target that ultimately paid the price for this? I mean, our case, I mean, I'm not going to go and, and call, you know, the Southern District and everyone races, but I think our case definitely shows that white privilege is a real thing. Um, and maybe racism in this particular case isn't so much direct, but maybe it's a subconscious thing because, again, like I, I touched on it a little bit in the documentary, but I didn't want to make this a race thing. I mentioned 
at the end, if all the players were were white and the people making money were African American, this would be like a COVID level shutdown. Like they would, no, nobody would be okay. It would be a, a major issue if, if black people are making billions off of white people and not paying them anything. Um, so just stuff like that, whereas, or, or, or even, you know, everybody always makes this negative connotation around grassroots basketball coaches and they're evil and they're the, the worst people in the world. But it's like, they're, they have found some kids and, and got them off the streets and got their grades right and traveled them and fed them and did everything else. And they're bad people, but the coaches at college in college basketball who are making $7 million and giving them nothing are great people. Like, it makes no sense when you really say the things out loud. So it's just the way that, that black men or black women are looked at or, or, or even perceived is already you already starting off as at, at a negative, you know what I mean? Um, and then, you know, white people just get benefit of the doubt times 10. Like the case shows that and no one can argue that Marty Blazer stole four million. None of this happens if they just arrest Marty Blazer and call it a day. Like it's over. No one gets charged. Just never even becomes a thing. The fact that you can steal $4 million and say, you know, to the, to the prosecutors or whomever, um, and convince them to not charge you and, you know, you, you, you can basically start your own case um, and investigate college basketball payments. I mean, that doesn't even, like, a black man would never get that opportunity. Like, it just don't happen. It's just not even reality. And for those listening who maybe haven't seen it, seen this, explain to them who Marty Blazer is, because he ultimately was the pug that wound up unraveling all of this. Yeah, so Marty Blazer was a was a financial advisor um, who, for some reason, he wasn't super prominent, but he had some real players, um, and he wanted to start producing movies. Basically, um, he took the players' money, and he also had like retirees and stuff like that. But he took four million dollars from retirees and, and professional athletes, put it into the movies. When the movies sucked basically he stole more money from his clients so when the i believe someone who worked with him um told on him i'm pretty certain um and then the fbi and the sec got involved and when it was time to charge him instead of them charging him his lawyers made a deal um and he was able to and this is not a joke um do like a one-man fbi supported investigation where he, you know, the announcement of his charges didn't happen. We didn't know that he was, he did what he did. They let him come around us and, and basically build a basketball corruption case. Um, and then at the end of the day, once he got all of us rounded up and we, you know, rightfully so, we shouldn't have been dealing with him. That was that we can't, we can't not acknowledge that because that if we don't deal with him, none of it happens. So, we did deal with him, and at the end of it, um, he was sentenced to, I think, like two months probation or two years. But it wasn't like he got no time, period, at the end of the day. Um, so, like, that's just an example of what I'm saying. Like, he, he was just he was just given the benefit of the doubt over and over and over and over. And that's just something that, you know, no black man gets. It's just not going to happen. As soon as we do anything, and I said in a documentary, not knowing I'm being recorded, I told the, the FBI, FBI undercovers some stuff just made me a little uncomfortable because there's these black men who work their whole lives to get to this position. And if anything goes wrong, it's over. It's curtains, basically. So, you know, we knew that to be a fact. And, and you know, if there's anything that I do regret, it is me not following my first mind like this is some BS because. You know, if I just stop it, then it doesn't spread to where it got. You know what I mean? So um, me being who I am and me being smart enough to realize all the different scenarios at play, I should have pulled back. And that wouldn't have even that, that would have stopped most of the dumb shit that it did occur. But even with that, it, it shouldn't have even got to that point if if people in power would have just arrested the guy and not let him be out here doing what he, you know, doing what he did. So, it, you know, it is what it is. Why do you think the FBI, why were they 
even interested in this type of corruption case with college basketball? Like, why did they care about this? Do you have any theories on that? Um, I mean, I don't know definitively, but I do know that prosecutors want to become mayors and senators and governors and everything like that. And you and the the the, the reason why everyone knows Rudy Giuliani, outside of him being mayors, he he indicted and he successfully prosecuted the, the mafia. Like those things are are, you know, sure prosecutors want to fight crime and everything like that, but it's also a job that 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 lends, you know, a credibility to political ambition. So, um, you know, if you have a case with major names in the media, your, your name is going to be in the media as well. Um, if you have a case where you can, you know, you're sports related, that's going to be a little sexier than, than, you know, Wall Street scandals and stuff like that. So my, I would think, you know, if you look at the look at the documentary, they had a press conference. They had all these things like that drawed attention to it. We didn't, this didn't have to be a national story. But it was because that's that that's how they wanted it to go. So in my opinion, I looked at it like, you know, this this is bigger than any of us. It's it's forces at play here that we don't really know about. And and um, still to this day, we, we, we don't have any answers for why the, the, the case was taken to the level it got to. It has to be, you know, for cloud purposes and, and just growing their brand as, as politicians or prosecutors or whatever the case may be. Because, I mean, this is this is blue blood Ivy League. These prosecutors have been a part of the system as on their side for for years. Their family may be connected to it. So it's much deeper than than what citizens, you know, really know is going on. Yeah, it's an interesting case. Uh, to come across and be on their particular radar. But I think there's a lot of political clout. But if you're going to do that, then it makes sense to go after the coaches if that's what you really want. Because those are the names. Nobody knew who you were outside of basketball circles. No one knew who you were until this happened. Right. So to me, it would seem much sexier to build a career case off of Rick Patino as opposed to Christian Dawkins. It definitely is, but you got to remember at the same time, the prosecutors are the ones who's who's defending the case in court. The FBI is the one that's investigating the case, and the prosecutors were privy to the fact that the FBI agents had um, done criminal, you know, was was involved with criminal activity connected to our case. I my idea, my thinking is they needed me to cooperate with them to bring down the bigger names because when you have Rick Pitino, you want to charge a Rick Pitino and you know there's corruption on your side as well. You can't sweep it under a rug like you could if if it's Christian Dawkins and Merle Cole or whomever the case may be. So my thinking is they thought all along that I was going to cooperate with them. And when I didn't, it became a situation where they couldn't go after those big names because there was too much negativity around their case that would have came out to the public if those big names are involved, basically. So why didn't you cooperate? Because it wasn't the right thing to do. No one's criminals. I'm not going to ruin someone's life because I got charged. Like, I don't, this isn't like me trying to be tough or anything like that. It's just, at the end of the day, um, for me to cooperate, I'm, I'm going to have to think that the other person has committed a crime. Like, no one in this case did anything where I'm going to rise it to the level of criminality. And if you think about it, you know, people's lives got destroyed. People's families got destroyed. People got divorced over this. Like, this is real stuff. This wasn't, this wasn't like a little blip on in people's lives. So I'm not going to contribute to something that I don't even believe in. Uh, I'm not going to do that for, for some, uh, a couple months off of a sentence. Like it is what it is. So is that why you think you got the longest sentence of anyone that was involved? I know I did. The judge still told me that in court when he sentenced me, he told me it wasn't, I didn't do myself any justice for um, taking a stand. Like, like it was a lot of stuff that that happened. Um, where if I just cooperate, I mean, look, everybody who did cooperate got probation or pled guilty. It's definitely some upside to doing that, but at the same time, I wouldn't have been able to to look at myself if I if I cooperated with them and and knowingly put people away or put people in, in bad positions when I know that that wasn't their intention or their heart in the time. Like, I can't. I don't know. I just ain't that type of person. You got to be kind of crazy to do that, in my opinion. How confident are you in your appeal? Um, I think, listen, the first case, 
the 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 Louisville Brian Bowen case, I mean, technically that is all above board now because you, the players can now um, monetize their likeness. So um, we always were, were were pretty confident in that case because there was there was a guy named Norby Walters who back in the day got charged with the same stuff. He lost a trial, but he won the appeal. And if you Google, it's a guy named Judge Easterbrook. If you Google his remarks on the case, you know, when he overturned it, he basically says that you can't defraud a university. Like, it's impossible. Um, so so that case is essentially a direct derivative. It's the same charges. So we were always confident in that one. The bribery case gets a little bit trickier because it's more defendants and it's a conspiracy. And there were there were coaches that were that were getting uh, money from Marty Blazer. So there's it's a little trickier as it pertains to to that because when you're in conspiracy, you don't necessarily have to, to, to fulfill all the actions. You just have to be involved basically. And there was there's no doubt that I was involved in some action. So I don't really know what's gonna happen on that. I don't know what's gonna happen on either of them, but I think I'm more confident in the first one than in the second one. But I mean, in the second case, my intention was never to bribe anybody. So, um, and even in trial, the, the prosecutors changed it from, even if Christian gave money to somebody to give to a player, that's still, that's still bribery. So they, they kind of maneuvered around the actual bribery definitions because my intention never was to be, I, I'm, I'm, I was just looking at it like these guys need money. I want to sign them. Um, if you were the person who was in the middle of it, then I would have made sure that it got to you and could get to the play. I didn't really, I wasn't looking at it that deeply at that point. For the people who really aren't familiar with how this works, I think something they have to understand is, I think pretty much all schools cheat. I mean, I, I'll be kind and say 90%, there is some form of cheating that's happening. And the way it works is very simple. If you want blue chip players, if you want good players, Regardless of what level of school you're at, uh, when you go and talk to parents or coaches or everybody who's in there, anybody who's in their circle, I mean, I think everybody kind of understands this is just the cost of doing business. You got to pay them to come there. And that's just what it is. I think for the most part, most coaches, they just probably look the other way. They've accepted the fact that this is just kind of the way it works and looking at the total fallout for everybody you in particular I mean I'm sure you could probably give a sermon on this but how did this change your life like what's the aftermath now that you know you you've been involved in the court system the documentary has come out uh what ultimately what was the impact that this had on your life well well initially it screwed me um Everything that I had built up to that point was 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 taken um, overnight. Your phones, correct? Yeah, they seized the everything. I mean, your your anything that you can think of. If you get into any federal case, it's pretty much over with, because this is this is the federal government. This isn't like a, a state charge, whatever the case may be. So so that in the in the immediate fashion, I was screwed. The you know, but I kind of, I mean, listen, I ain't gonna be the type of guy that's just gonna lay around and feel bad for myself. I um probably like six months after no it was longer than that maybe like eight months after i my life i got i got it back in order um i i built a company and and we ended up getting a label deal at atlantic on the music side obviously the scheme um deal was made so there was some stuff that that was moving and i just kind of took a bad situation and and flipped it into something that could be a positive so right now i mean my life isn't bad at all i'm not going to sit up there and say this um but it's definitely it's more so just in my mind it's like the stuff i have to think about the stuff the way i have to live my life now is completely different than it was before this happened so more so the effects have been mental or you know the way the way i feel about certain things anxiety about certain things but as far as my current like economic situation or life situation as it pertains to that i mean i'm doing pretty well right now I think you said in the doc that you had 90 grand at the crib yeah. that you could live off of. <laughs> would you would you have it in a mattress? I had a safe. I used to have a safe. Okay, so you had a safe. Um, so were you always preparing that should that day ever come that you're 
going to need this kind of money? Like if everything goes to shit, like this is the rainy day fund. Is that what you were thinking? Well, yeah, exactly. Cause I, I don't know. I don't know if, um, I don't know my grandma, I guess growing up and stuff, my grandma, so no, my family didn't even really believe in banks and stuff like that for real. So it was like, that's always kind of been in my head to a certain extent. Um, so obviously I have bank accounts and stuff like that. Now it's a little bit more of a sophisticated operation, but then it was, it was like, you know, I got the bank accounts, but I'm also going to keep this on me. So obviously you've gone through a lot. What kind of things, I guess, before the scheme came out, what kind of things were people saying to you or the type of things you were hearing that people had to say about your character and just how you worked? I think most people in the beginning thought I had snitched on everybody. People didn't really understand the um, the dynamic. They thought it was me basically in the um, in the Marty Blazer row. Before the scheme came out, most people had a completely different perception of me, who I was. They thought I was like a guy going around, you know, with no integrity or no morals and just trying to make a deal, basically. And sure, there's I would agree with the the um, if someone says I'm a hustler, like I'm a figured out. That's true. But at the end of the day, I always I believe you got to have honor amongst thieves to a certain extent. And I always try to take care of people and keep my word as it pertains to um how I was going to treat people or how I was going to, going to move. Basically. I never, I never was on no shysty stuff. So, um, I think that was something that was a revelation when people really sat and watched the documentary. Most people at least was like, I, this dude ain't his intentions wasn't in the wrong place. Now did stuff get completely screwed up? Sure. But I wasn't going in trying to do nothing crazy. You know, that wasn't my, my MO. So how did this game come about? I had everybody coming at me. I had the production companies. I, I thought I was 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 about to get a, a nice check, and I see the contract. I realize it's a holding contract. Like essentially, they can sell me off to somebody else. And then um, I basically got a meeting with HBO, pitched them on you know what it should be, or at least what I thought it was. They bought it immediately. They was into it, and then they they are the ones who Peter Nelson at HBO essentially found the filmmakers and, and vetted the filmmakers and Rudy Klein Thomas, who was an executive producer on the, on the scheme. He's the one who brokered the meeting with HBO. He's the one who kind of, he had the process all the way through from A to Z, you know, step-by-step step with me. So, so Rudy's the one who, who kind of put the battery in my back after I realized that I didn't, that I could, you know, we should be trying to go straight to the network. And he was every step of the way, making sure the process and the project actually came to, to fruition and Peter Nelson at HBO, you know, did a hell of a job from a creative perspective and just being supportive as well. So that those are the two people, you know, outside of myself and 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 the people in the documentary, like my attorney Stephen Haney, and also the the filmmaker Pack in Dallas. Those were the people that were kind of involved with moving this thing forward. I have so much more I want to ask you about the scheme and also about your roots. Uh, I know a lot of 12 year olds love basketball, but you were able to turn that into a career. Um, you know, not saying that a 12 year old is going to have the kind of business sense that you had at that age, but nevertheless, it may be inspiring for them to hear. Um, but also want to talk to you about the beginning and just a lot of the things that you've been through. So want to dive into that. But first, let's take a quick break more with Christian Dawkins when we come back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Christian, let's talk about how this all started, because I think it's really interesting. You've been a basketball head your whole life, and I do mean your whole life. And you started mentioning how you wanted to do sports and entertainment when you were young, and you started your own scouting service when you were 12 years old. Why were you so driven and determined to make basketball 
the centerpiece of whatever career you imagined for yourself? Um, I guess it wasn't that strategic when I was that young. Um, that was pretty much all that that was going on in Saginaw. Like it wasn't a whole lot of stuff happening. Um, and I went to my dad was the coach of Saginaw High School, which is like he said in documentary to us, the best school there is. So um, I was always there. You know, he was the basketball coach. So he was always kind of around basketball. So it was kind of something that was naturally organic, just just was in my life as it pertains to the scouting service. So basically, my dad had a great high school team. At the time, there was, I don't know if you know Vince Baldwin from Detroit and, and Norm Oden, who's also from Detroit. They were, they were like the guys, Vince had Nike, he was doing the scouting stuff, and he had his own magazine. And then Norm had a, um, a, a deal with Rivals, where he was like the editor of Michigan Preps. And they both are, for the people who don't know them, they're like legendary figures in the Michigan basketball space, basically. So they were busy people, and they had these media or, or, or scouting projects, and they needed somebody who could actually you know, meet deadlines, get reports done, blah, blah, blah. They both had a um, deal. One, Vince was at Nike. Uh, Norm had his deal at Adidas. So I'm 11, 12 years old, and they basically were like, listen, if you can get this stuff turned around and you can do it in a proper way, we'll, we'll give you free shoes and sweatsuits and stuff. That's how they paid me. So in the beginning, it, it was just I can get free clothes to go to school and free Jordans. I'm wearing 11s every day. Like, stuff was crazy. And then um, I realized, like, yo, these, like, I can kind of just do my own thing. Once I started to build it up through them, I was on the computer, and it was like I can publish my own stuff. And I don't know, it was just the natural progression in my mind at that time. Like, I, I started with somebody else, and now it's the time to do my own thing. Now, you were charging coaches $600, right, to subscribe. Yeah. Like, how much money were you able to bring in? So that was a little bit later. I didn't start doing that till I was like 16. Not that that's like I'm 50. You're right. It was like, that's still pretty old. <laughs> but at that moment, I was transitioning to take over our um, travel travel basketball program. And essentially, the, all these coaches was recruiting the, 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 recruiting the kids that, that were coming through our program, basically. So if you think about it, you know, in Michigan, the whole Midwest and the, the Big East conferences, basically the whole eastern side of the country were subscribing at that point. Um, and, you know, 600, I don't, it was six figures for sure. I mean, I was driving a BMW my senior high school, so I don't really remember. You were driving a BMW? Yeah. Um, yeah, my senior year, or maybe I didn't get into after I was out of high school, like the, as soon as I graduated, but I'm pretty sure I had it my senior year. So we What were, did your parents think about all this? My dad's the one who told me where, to, where I could buy it at. I remember he he was like, "Yo, there's a new, there's a BMW going. It's a good rate." You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I think that they were proud of me. I remember um, right when I had um, got out of high school, I had got like twenty thousand dollars for something. And I remember um, bringing my computer to their room and like, because I was still living with them, and I had just showed them like, "This is one, this is like one transaction, basically." So. Um, I think that they thought I was a little bit crazy um, and wildly ambitious, but they never stopped me from dreaming. And that's something that people do do to their kids. Like, you can't do this or you should be focusing on this because cause it is. Like, they never, ever did that. So that's something that I, I do think did help me grow. And, and I don't know. I just it, 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 I know how some people think that this is all crazy, but for me, it's it was all natural. And I think that mindset came from them always, you know, supporting everything, every crazy idea I had, basically. So once you uh, got grown and you were starting your own company, uh, you know, given the amount of money you were making and how you were wheeling and dealing and all this, were your parents, did they ever say to you, you might want to think about settling down like you're going a little bit too fast like were they trying to get you to pump the brakes at all because everything seemed to be coming so fast for you no it wasn't it wasn't it would it wouldn't have been that it would have been more so just not you moving too fast it was just more so just don't be dealing with people that's how my my dad ain't the type of person just to be talking to anybody so that would have been 
um, something that he would have been shaky about is like it's too many people saying your name, and that is what 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 um brought everything down. It was too many people who 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 knew stuff that was happening. Um, so so that would have been his thing. My mom would have been more so just just you know be careful and everything like that. But they didn't know all the the details until after everything went down. I mean, honestly, and I don't I don't I'm not trying to be funny saying this. I didn't even really realize everything that was happening until it was over. Um, because when you're in it and you're moving so quickly, you ain't really thinking about everything that's happening. Like it, there was somebody, a player who is an NBA now, and we we're very close, like family. And I didn't represent him because I didn't think that he was an NBA player. I wasn't certain. And I didn't want to take him on. And our relationship get messed up because he doesn't make it, basically. So after the scheme, he calls me and we had like a heart to heart. And he basically tells me of a conversation that we had and he felt like I big timed him. And I, I said to him, like, listen, bro, I understand what you're saying, but I don't even remember this conversation because I was involved with so much stuff that, that you know, you missing little details or stuff is stuff is not going over your head, but it's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's just basically like we was, we was just, in, I was just involved in too much stuff, basically. Like it was just a lot happening and a lot of stuff that I was kind of, a lot of traffic that I was directing or moving and some stuff kind of got lost in translation, basically. If you can ballpark it, how much money over the years that you've been associated with players in this type of business, how much money do you think you've given the players over the years? To answer your question, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know the exact number, but it's... It, I thought you were going to say something higher than that, to well, be well, honest. It, it, it's up there, <laughs> for sure. I mean, I, don't, I know that that to the way your contract is structured, or the way my deal was structured with the company I was at, your salary and your expenses is essentially a draw against your commissions that you bring in, basically. So if you... Are you talking about when you were with Andy Miller? Yeah. So if, you, if your salary and expenses are a million and you gross two million, and your your percentage of the of your commission is let's say thirty percent. You would have gotten three hundred grand as opposed to um, six hundred grand or whatever the case may be. So you had like a, a draw against that. I know my my balance was in the seven figures when when at the end for sure between my salary and my expenses. So I don't know the exact number of that that went to 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 recruiting, but I it, I know it's six figures for sure. The thing about the, the the college thing is you're not really giving people no real money. It's more so the parents just need expenses to get to the games. I mean, that's pretty much the thing is travel costs. Like if you look at the documentary, we're talking about so-and-so's getting two grand a month and like they're paying to get to see their kid play. Ain't nobody getting rich. Like this wasn't a, we're dropping $400,000 on somebody. That wasn't blue chips, right? No, like that happens in football. Basketball isn't as, you know, you have a case where, like if it's somebody that's super, super, super important, you know, maybe like Brian Bowen got up to, to, to he, he was going to get up to six figures. But, but like, you know, that was even going to be spread across the entire year. Like it wasn't at one time. And Brian's dad, his house had burned down in Saginaw. Like it was a reason why he needed the money. It wasn't like, yo, I have to have this. Um, no matter what, it was like, yo, my kid's coming down there. He's never been to been away from us. We want to, we want to be around him. We want to go to the games to, to, to get a new place in Louisville and to travel is going to probably cost you a hundred grand. So that's what it was. It wasn't a, let's get rich off of this thing that's happening. Well, speaking of which, I'm sure you've seen the news about Zion Williamson, his former marketing rep saying that his mother and stepfather demanded and received money and gifts from people acting on behalf of Nike and Adidas and also Duke. Hmm. I'm sure that's not surprising to you at all. It's like Zion Williamson. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's Zion Williamson. As he should, he should be getting money from everybody that you just named. Like, I don't see why he wouldn't. I would imagine that's probably a six figure bag like that. If you got a Zion Williamson, that type of person, First of all, even six figures is low, okay? Like, like, let's just say, um, you know, if, if everything comes out, his family got a million dollars. They're still underselling themselves, definitely. By a large, large margin. So it's like, when I see my, again, I'm jaded. So my POV, when I see stuff like that, it's just like, what's the big deal here? Like, I don't understand why are we even 
bringing this up. Now, now as it pertains to the real case, you know, the, her lawyers are just doing that to create a settlement. Like, let's get this over with. Y'all don't want, nobody wants discovery to actually happen in that case. They, so they should just settle and move forward. And, and if she did negotiate substantially a deal, then it is fair. It's good business to take care of her. You shouldn't do people like that. Yeah, I was going to say, though, have you noticed? I mean, I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but the public reaction, it seems to have shifted on this. Is that something you've noticed as well? Yeah, I think now after the scheme and, and after some of the, you know, our case and everything that's kind of come out, one, people tired of talking about it. Like, first of all, you know, it's been going on now, if you think about it, since 2017 when we first got charged. Like, this has been a topic, topic. And now I think people have enough data and information to realize, like, we shouldn't be mad at Zion Williamson's family if they ask to get some money. We should be mad that they even have to ask. That should be the 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 POV of everybody, it should already be established that his family is straight. And I think that's the right mentality. I think that players shouldn't be drugged across the media like they're awful people because they mom and daddy needed to get to 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 the Maui invitation or get to the Sweet 16 and and and, and they took some money. Like, okay, big deal it's not a big deal in reality. You got a bunch of people taking care of some black people and this is a federal case. Any other profession in America, you get paid to do what you do. Like, I'm sure you think you're underpaid. The NCAA convinced everyone that you should get paid nothing. And if you do, it's a corruption case. Like, even the fact that they're saying that our case is corrupt, like, no, it's not. We, we gave some money to some people who should have got it. That's nothing corrupt about that. Now, if we were, if we were taking the money, like if I negotiate this deal for Brian Bowen and took it, and spent it on me, then that's corrupt to me. That's like, because um, the person who should have got it didn't get it. The people who were entitled to it didn't get it. Now that would have been, we should have went to prison for that. That would have made sense to me. Now it's interesting that you said a second ago about how most of the players that you came in contact with um, and by extension their families, they weren't asking for get rich money. They were asking for let me get by money. That's stunning to me. Is that because they weren't aware of what they were worth? I mean, I don't know if you would have paid them more if they asked for it, but why? Because, I mean, we were joking about this before we got on air, because, you know, and then everybody else out there knows I went to Michigan State and Miles Bridges. I think he was in a situation where he got like $400 for his mom in connection with your case. And it's like, you know, I'm thinking oh God, this is not even a big amount of money. I mean, I don't know the players just sold themselves short or is that a statement in itself that all they really need is just money to get by? One thing that they, they do need is, is resources to get by. I mean, most of these kids are from, from inner city backgrounds and, and, and may come from single parent homes or, or just underprivileged uh, situations. So on the first, at the first Way to answer your questions. I think they really do need the money to get by. And the second thing I would say is, as it pertains to like the the low amounts that are that are being paid out, or or essentially them not dictating what they what their worth, their proper worth is. I think that's more so just the worker mentality that sometimes African American people have for themselves and people around them. Like because we don't see every day people working in business and navigating, you know, a corporate arena and being successful um, or because we, you know, it's kind of still a little bit of a, um, of a dream to like really make it in like, in like corporate America. I think, you know, sometimes we as people kind of just happy to, to get a little bit or just happy to get something that, that, that we don't look at, okay, we need to be owning the whole thing, or we need to be trying to get some equity, or we need to getting our full worth. Sometimes people are literally, literally um, embarrassed to demand, you know, their full worth. Uh, and most, most of the times, the people in power, the people who are deciding compensation are, are Caucasian. And usually, um, it's all, you know, they, on the other side, it's like, you should feel bad, or you should, you should, you're greedy or whatever the case may be. When it, if you look at their compensation, it's pretty high. Like it ain't, it's not low. So it's like, at the end of the day, I think it's just like again the mentality, the the information that we have, the 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 
the the education that we we don't have as it pertains to what our true market value is. If you really think about it, we should own everything. Like all the talented people, I, I'm not being racist when I say this either. Most of the talented people are African American. I would say in TV, film, music, um, fashion, sports. We, we like, are we are pop culture. I mean, there's no question. We're the only thing. Like America doesn't produce a lot anymore. Our export is entertainment. It's entertainment. It's sports. Yes. Exactly. So, so if our export as America is entertainment, and the and the talent of entertainment is is essentially all African Americans, it makes no sense for us not to own these studios, or not to own teams, or not to own, um, you know, these record companies or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Everything is owned not by us, and we're the ones that's driving all the revenue for these asset businesses that are growing. So, you know, most of the times it's just more so we we lack the the information or the or the education as it pertains to the business side everybody wants us to give them their talent and sign that over and for us to be happy to get a check and it's like no i want the whole thing um or at least a bigger portion of the whole thing i want to be a partner i want an equitable arrangement as opposed to you know a transactional mentality of let's just give you this you know whatever and you be happy about it so, so I think once we start to really establish that mindset, and you see it with athletes now like LeBron, and you know you've seen it on the music side for since the '90s with people like Puffy and, and and Jay and people like that. So the more these situations occur where people start to see like, yo, we can not only just be the talent, we can also be the businessman that that signs the checks. Once we are comfortable with that uh, mentality, I think at that point real change can be made, and we can really leverage our talent the right way. Now, to your point, uh, I've noticed that uh, Jalen Green, a top prospect, a college basketball prospect, also Isaiah Todd, they are they decided to go to the G League instead of going to college. Are the players at that level finally wisening up that they don't need the NCAA to make it to the NBA? The phone calls that are in the documentary from the coaches, I think that was a revelation for every player in the in in america to see like no one can say to you that you don't have value no one can say that that um you shouldn't be compensated like brian bowen you know was a great 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 high school basketball player but but you from michigan he is not a top one 200 player for michigan so so if, if he is able to get a hundred grand then what what is what, what could chris weber have gotten what could Jalen rose have gotten what have what could the, we kind of have some idea with Chris? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from back in the day, <laughs> if it was completely above board and you didn't have to get the money from the number man, basically, and you could get it from Nike or whomever, it would have been much more. You know what I'm saying? So my point is, the players now are starting to realize like they help, they hold real value, and and I think technology is a part of of this rapid um, mindset change. Like you can Google everything now, so. These young kids don't think like the, the the prior generation did. They're not waiting. They're not they they're not trying to sit back. They have access to information and they're using it, which is good to me. I think it's 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 great to see you know people taking power back into their own hands. So I think all the players are going to really start looking at all their options and not just think, okay, I have to go to 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 Duke or 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 Kentucky or whatever the case may be to make it. Are you surprised Sean Miller and Will Wade have their jobs? Because they were, you're not surprised, okay? So Will Wade is the the coach at LSU, Sean Miller, Arizona, and they are caught dead to right on this, on, on you know, on wiretaps, uh, talking with you, openly, clearly making deals in terms of players, and this is all in, in the scheme, and both of them have their jobs, and you said you're not surprised. Why? Why are you not surprised? Why would you ever be surprised that, that that someone who's Caucasian doesn't get held accountable? Like it never happens. Why would you? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm. I would have been surprised if they did um, lose their job. And furthermore, um, let's just be honest. Like those dudes are winning games. They they doing what they're supposed. They're they're fulfilling their job requirements. Like they're not. They should, in my opinion, they shouldn't be fired. Like. My only issue, I don't have nothing. Like, again, Will Wade, I think Will Wade is great. Like, he's he did what he's, I would have done in that position if I could get away with it. Sean, my only issue with Sean, uh, again, I think Sean has, is a good person, but the way Book was treated is I never could, could 
could understand that. That's never going to be something that I can get over. So, so, or not hold Sean accountable for, because Sean knows what book was doing. Sean knows what book's intention was. Book wasn't trying to, to do anything that would hurt the Arizona men's basketball program. And, you know, there were certain letters that the school wrote to try to get book more time. Like, there was just certain stuff that was just so trifling that I could never really look at them the same way. Um, but Sean, as it pertains to being a coach and, and, and everything like that, he never didn't keep his word as it pertains to anything that, that dealt with me. So I can't say that he's a bad guy. If I'm being honest, I don't think that they should get, get fired because I believe that the players should get paid. I can't have it both ways and say that these guys who are doing this are, are – that's why I said in there, the people who aren't doing this or aren't taking care of their players are bad people to me because I don't understand how you could reap the benefits to the tunes of millions and not look out for the people who are helping you get in that position. But as it pertains to, to me being shocked or surprised, like, it's been going on for 50 years. You got black assistants losing it. Look at Ty Bozeman. You got Bruce Pearl been through it three times. And I'm not mad at Bruce Pearl. He should take the jobs. He should continue to move forward. I'm just saying, like, the system don't give us as many chances or the benefit of the doubt as they get. That's just the fact of the matter. It's nothing that me being jaded or me being salty. It's just that's just the, the America that we live in today. No, that's that's reality. I mean, we see it a thousand times is that an assistant most of the time who's black is winds up taking the fall for everybody else. Um, one of the funnier parts of the documentary is what your mom told you when you were locked up. She said, suck it the fuck up and stop crying and you're coming home. <laughs> when your mom told you that, uh, and this is after what the fans had, had busted, they had pulled out the machine guns on you, right? And so you've gone through this traumatic experience yeah. of being arrested. And your mom's response was, suck it the fuck up. <laughs> what did you think about that in the moment? <laughs> so so what happened was I, I couldn't make a call to my lawyer. So I had a public defender. My public defender brings me in her office and she's telling me, um, you know, the circumstances that are, you know, I'm basically about to face. And I asked her, can I call my, my, my family? Because they took my phones and I, I knew that like, if my mom ain't talking to me for a day. She's already lost the son. So if she don't hear from me, police going to be somewhere around anyway by a certain time. So I knew I needed to, to call them and talk to them. And the, the public defender said something like, um, his residence is Atlanta and he has to decide where he's going. You can't tell us where he's going, basically. So that's what made her explode. Like, <laughs> basically, like, I don't even know who you is, but if my son is with you right now, he needs to come where I am. I don't care what he said. I don't care what you are saying. And, and basically, I was at this moment, I'm crying because my sister is also on the phone. She's talking to me and my mom was basically just irritated and was just like, listen. You need to stop crying. Miss Public Defender, you need to shut up and send them back home. And that's just what it was at that point, basically. It was no second opinion. It was no second vote. That was the final answer, essentially. Were there any feelings of guilt that you were putting your family through this? I remember asking my, when I first got arrested, um, I remember talking to my grandfather and I asked him how he found out about it. And he said he was just watching CNN. And then he looked up and there I was. And that made me be like, damn, like this is like it's different when you show people who, who have to go through it with you. So I remember at one point I just said to them, um, I don't want you guys to to look at me different or judge me differently, basically, because of the stuff that's that's in the media. And I remember them basically looking at me like when I said that, like, are you stupid? Basically, like, we know you like we don't care about what somebody else has to say or or this situation. Now, when my mom says to me. When she asked me, did I did I hurt anybody or did I do something that 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 she would deem to be a, a real problem? She was like, if I would have done something that was like rape somebody, kill somebody, did something really crazy they wouldn't have she would have been like yo you need to you got to pay for that like that's what it is so so it wasn't a situation where they weren't holding me accountable and this was like fantasy land here but it was more so like listen in this particular situation we knew your intention we know where your heart was we just got to get through this as a family basically it wasn't ever 
them looking down on me. Did, did, I, did, did I feel some guilt? Absolutely. I think anybody who, who, who says they didn't or wouldn't is delusional. So I definitely felt it, but they, they nipped that in the bud pretty quickly. Yeah, you said this early in the podcast, and I want to give people an update of, of what you're doing now in addition to fighting uh, things on the legal front. But uh, you are now a record label manager, right? Yeah, I, I own a label, yeah. Exactly. You own a label, correct. Uh, Chosen Music Group. Chosen Music, yeah. Which is a part of Atlantic. We have a joint venture with Atlantic, yes. So how did you transition from being sports, uh, basketball, into music? So essentially, I um, had read an article about like SoundCloud and like its explosion in um, hip-hop music. Like, like cause for, still to this day, but when a case first happened, you had all these young rappers like Lil Uzi Vert, Lil Pump, like all these dudes was blowing up through SoundCloud. And I was like, well, what is this? So I got on there and I got recommended a record, you know, like through this algorithm and I listened to it and I thought the song was fire. I reached out to the artist, his name was Katil. And essentially I was like, yo, I wanna manage you. I started shopping his demos around to people that I knew. Everybody wanted to sign them. And I was like, you know what? We should, instead of me signing him over to somebody else, I should just do my own label deal and my partner in my music company is alex rifkin who is the oldest son of steve rifkin who's one of the biggest people ever in music so alex's godfather right now is the president of def jam so we had relationships at like the top with with um you know the label chairman and stuff like that what was random was fred van vliet's business manager Okay, Fred Van Vliet was a guy that I was involved with when I was doing it. I put him with, a, with an accountant. That accountant happens to represent a lot of black executives and entertainment. And as I'm about to make the deal, he calls me and is like, listen, you should, you should go see Atlantic. My client, Daryl Jones, is, um, is there. He just brought Cardi B to Atlantic. So obviously, you bring Cardi B and you're going to have a little bit of juice. So he sets up the meeting with Daryl, ended up setting up a meeting with Craig Cowman who is the chairman of Atlantic and first meeting, you know, we talked and then Craig leaves the office, comes back in and he's like, Christian, is this a label deal or artist deal? And I was like, I want a label. And he was like, okay, go down the hall and see Julie Greenwald, who was his partner and the co-chairman of Atlantic. We sat with her for a couple hours and literally they made an offer a couple of weeks later. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that deep. And it was, it was funny because that plug kind of came through, a basketball relationship or a sporting relationship. So um, again, it was just, you know, people who I was dealing with knew, knew who I really was and knew that I didn't have no bad intentions. So they was, people were still trying to, to help me and, and to continue to support me. So that was just a perfect example of just like the universe working in your favor and God just, just showing up when you need them. And I mean, that was of all the stuff that I've done, all the money that I've made, our first advance was more than anything I've ever accumulated in my life. So it was a situation where when it was the lowest point, I mean, when I really didn't have nothing, I went from that to, I mean, I'm doing okay now. It was a blessing and it, was, it wasn't that calculated. It was just me like, listen, I know that I'm good at this. Like, I know I know what I'm doing as it pertains to you know, management, whether it's an artist or athlete or actress, the same thing, basically, you're representing talent. You know, I ended up navigating it the right way and we was in a blessed position and now we, we have a label deal. Before I get you out of here, I'm going to play a quick game with you. I call this or that. I play it with all my guests. I give you two choices, Christian. Two. Okay. You got to pick one. All right. You're a decisive guy, so I know you can nail this. Um, you're a Jordan guy, as in shoes, right? Who is it, right? Yeah. First question is, the ones or the Space Jams? Space Jams. You own both pair? Yes, I do. Of course you do. Uh, Martin, <laughs> Martin or Fresh Prince? Ooh, that's a really difficult one. I don't even know if I can do that. I would probably go with Fresh Prince, but... I mean, Martin is, ooh, that's a hard one. That's you got to make a choice. One. I told you. I'm going to go with Fresh Prince. You'll go with Fresh Prince? Now, Martin, I, I've said this repeatedly to a number of guests. I've asked that question to. With Martin, the highs are really high. Exactly. But the lows are, ooh. Yeah. But Fresh Prince was a more well-rounded show. But if they're both marathoning, I'm totally watching Martin. So it's not even close. Um, 
Jordan or LeBron? Whew. If you ask me this. Damn, you really have to think about that? <laughs> so, so, yes. And, I, and let me tell you this. The last dance done changed my opinion. I've been, first of all, LeBron is my favorite player to ever live, and it won't probably won't ever change. So I'm, I'm super biased. I still, I'm a grown man with, with a grown woman I live with, and he still is in my house with posters and stuff. So it is what it is. Um, but Michael, after watching this last dance, it's just, I don't know. I'm still going to I'm going to go with Michael now, but I will say as it pertains to who I like the best, LeBron will always be my favorite player. Kyle Kuzma or Miles Bridges? They're different. That's that's a different that's a difficult comparison. I would probably say Miles because he's so physical and so athletic. Kyle spaces that floor. You need a shooter. So, I think they're both equally valuable. I'm definitely happy for both of them being from basically back home and taking to where they're taking it. But I would probably say if you just had to pick one, Miles is probably a little bit better. But Kyle is also equally uh, is effective and important in my head today. I got one that's even closer to home since you're from Saginaw. So I, I don't know. Uh, I, I imagine this debate has uh, taken place in terms of best player to come out of Saginaw. Draymond or Jason Richardson? No, it's Draymond not even close. Like even not even close. No, it's not even a conversation. Ooh. I think Draymond is that Jason wouldn't be Jason. Would, if you ask people from that's really from Saginaw, Jason wouldn't even be the, the player you would take from his high school team to that to that conversation. DeAndre Hewitt, who came out of high school, he got drafted. He came from Juco to the NBA. He played on an Arthur Hill team with Jason Richardson, too. DeAndre was better than Jason in high school. Um, obviously, Jason had a better career. But I think most people from Saginaw would, would bring up a Terrence Roberson or a, or a Jason Richardson or Anthony Roberson, those type of people before they do Jason. Draymond is not even I, – I don't even know how that's a debate. Draymond's a Hall of Famer to me. Draymond should be a first ballot Hall of Famer in my opinion. So who's the best player to come out of Saginaw in your opinion? It has to be Draymond now. I think the best high school player – probably was 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 you could go anthony roberson you could go terrence roberson you could go some guys that's not draymond it could be some debates but i mean this dude got multiple rings final four state championships in high school like all-stars olympians i mean come on like you gotta give him credit <laughs> Wait, what else you need <laughs> yeah right? what else you gonna do <laughs> uh well christian thank you so much uh for joining me um obviously good luck with everything you're doing on the music side and you clearly you have a knack for Talent, deals, doesn't matter uh, if it's basketball, music, or whatever. Um, and I'll leave the people who are listening with with what I think was your best quote through the whole documentary of the scheme, which, again, you guys need to check out on HBO. The moral of the story is fuck the NCAA. Exactly. 100%. <laughs> 100%. Just everybody remember that. Um, all right. Christian's getting out of here. I'm still sticking around. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. sure many of you have noticed that we now have sports back well sort of the WNBA and the NBA who I uh, talked about the WNBA at the beginning of this podcast are back in all things considered they found a way to coexist with this pandemic that has not been the case for Major League Baseball as of the taping of this podcast they've already had to postpone 21 games because of the coronavirus outbreak the Florida Marlins had 21 members of their organization test positive the St. Louis Cardinals had 13 players and staff test positive shit is already out of hand and the league hasn't even been in business for two full weeks in the on deck circle see what I did there is college football and based off what I'm seeing that shit is about to be a full-blown disaster and fuck it, I'm bothered. As I mentioned, no problems in the WNBA and the NBA. Why? Because they're in a bubble. No problems in the NHL. Why? Because they're in a bubble. No problems in the National Women's Soccer League. Why? Because they're in a bubble. Know who's not in the bubble? Major League Baseball. Know who won't be in the bubble? College football. Also, the NFL. Now, it's one thing if there are fuck-ups in the professional leagues. Those guys are getting paid. What's happening in college football? Is just downright wrong and unethical. They aren't getting paid, but the NCAA and these universities and colleges absolutely want them to risk their health because they have built an entire economy off their free labor. 
The Washington Post obtained an audio recording of a conference call between the SEC commissioner, Greg Sankey, and other officials and SEC players. And it just revealed the terrible and unfair position the players have been put in. One of the officials on the call straight up told them that they just had to live with the fact that there will be positive tests. One player brought up the fact that they will be on campus with students who won't be as vigilant about safety measures as they will. As the player pointed out, they could do everything right and still get sick because Tim in their econ class been acting a fool out there. An official responded by saying it was on the athletes to encourage their classmates to be responsible. What kind of shit is that? Another player on the call asked about the long-term effects of COVID and nobody had a clue. And one official reluctantly admitted that from what she'd seen, it had taken those infected with COVID in their age group six to eight weeks to feel somewhat okay. Bottom line is the people in charge, the ones that are actually allowed to make money, don't have a problem using college football players as guinea pigs so that the money keeps flowing. Thankfully, a lot of the players are smartening up and understand that now is the time to hold NCAA leadership, these colleges and universities all accountable. A group of athletes in the Pac-12 at various schools are threatening to boycott if some demands aren't met. Beyond better safety measures, they want 50% of the revenue to go to athletes. By the way, the Pac-12 generated $550 million in football revenue just last year. The only way this system will change is if the athletes break the system because the system has no interest in correcting itself. At Colorado State, players have alleged that the athletic department staff have told them not to report COVID-19 symptoms, threaten them with reduced playing time if they quarantine, and they also say the school is altering contract tracing reports to keep the players practicing. That's why they need to boycott and burn this bitch to the ground. I mean that metaphorically, of course. Either way, it's time for Rome, as in college football, to fall. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent, and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs>